This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. This is Trumpet Hour on KPCG. I'm Philip Nice. Are you worried about your finances? Are you worried about the American economy? Are you worried about Iran developing nuclear technology? Or has that issue basically faded away? Have you wondered why Trumpet Hour focuses so much on Germany? Have you wondered, hey, who produces Trumpet Hour in the first place? Well, if you have these questions, we have answers here for you on this episode of Trumpet Hour. My agenda will tax China to build up America. The heart of my vision is a sweeping pro-American overhaul of our tax and trade policy to move from the Biden system that punishes domestic producers and rewards outsourcers to a system that rewards domestic production and taxes foreign companies and those who export American jobs. They will be rewarded and rewarded greatly, and our country will benefit. To achieve this goal, we will phase in a system of universal baseline tariffs on most foreign products. On top of this, higher tariffs will increase incrementally depending on how much individual foreign countries devalue their currency. They devalue their currency to take advantage of the United States, and they subsidize their industries or otherwise engage in trade cheating. Welcome, Trumpet Hour listeners. Good to be with you this first week of March 2023. Will there be enough money? Will your family have enough to live well? Will mine? These are questions about the United States economy and the world economy that are becoming more pressing, more burning uh, with each passing day as Americans suffer high inflation and uh, the American economy gets more and more precarious. And this is an issue that presidential candidate Donald Trump addressed recently at the Conservative Political Action Conference uh, in, a, in a speech there. And here with me to discuss it in the studio is Andrew Miller, a staff author for the Philadelphia Trumpet. And he and I, uh, Andrew, we often talk about uh, economics and how uh, in past years, when it wasn't such a burning issue, it would actually be hard to get people to pay attention to the issue of economics in general. But now, as we see uh, the American economy really suffering, um, it's something that is on people's minds, and President Trump addressed it. Yeah, it seems like President Trump, uh, as he's shifting into his 2024 campaign mode is really zeroing in on two targets, uh, Joe Biden and China. And since Joe Biden works for China, that really gives him a very focused campaign. He, he basically gave the live action version of a video he recorded uh, about a week ago at the, the CPAC last night. And um, had some really, uh, really astounding statements in there that I actually think could, uh, could do the nation a lot of good if he's able to pull it off well. 
in a, in a well-organized manner where he was really focused on that our trade deficit is hit a record high of 12.2% this year. That means that we're uh, importing 12% more than we're exporting, um, which means that if, uh, <laughs> if uh, we stopped importing and exporting tomorrow, uh, we wouldn't have enough stuff here. We're, we're getting about 12% of our stuff from places that aren't America. And uh, Donald Trump, he's really, he's made it a point of his campaign that he wants to reduce that trade deficit. He wants to take manufacturing jobs occurring in other countries and have them done here uh, in America. And perhaps even more importantly, he wants to at least make sure that like goods that are vital to our national security, like steel, aluminum, stuff like that, that we're making enough of it in the nation, that in the event of a war or something like that, we wouldn't be cut off guard. And so he, he focused on two big points in this, uh, in this trade speech, is that one, he says that we need to bring back higher tariffs in the United States. A tariff is a tax on goods you import. Uh, and he said specifically we need to do higher tariffs on countries that are artificially devaluing their currency uh, in order to increase our trade deficit. Uh, the two big offenders to that that come to mind uh, are the, the European Union and China. Uh, the European Union's a little more sophisticated how they do it because they have 20, uh, well, because in the Euro there's 17 nations in one trade block. The strength of the German economy is averaged against the weakness of the Greek economy which makes the euro weaker than it would be if it was just Germany's alone. Therefore, if the euro is weak, it's cheap for us to buy European goods. China's a little more on the nose where they just passed a law that said the yuan is equal to $1 divided by eight. And so you're, oh, it's always like about eight times cheaper to buy stuff from China. So uh, American business people do that all the time. And then Trump's saying, like, now we're actually reliant on China for goods vital to our national security. So we need to start putting like a 25% tariff uh, or higher on these goods to make it uh, cost effective for uh, or to incentivize American companies to build those things here. And in some, in certain cases, things like uh, pharmaceuticals and electronics and things that are really vital to national security, he's even talking about just putting a blanket ban that, like, you can't buy those goods from China. You have to buy uh, in-house in the United States. So this is not a free market, free trade uh, type of position for him to take. This is not your... Um, Thomas Sowell basic economics uh, approach. This is a very active um, uh, interventionist. I've heard it called mercantilist uh, type of approach. Uh, is this something that takes us back to the 1980s or perhaps before? Uh, or are we going into kind of uncharted territory here with a, a global economy that's now... Um, uh, that Donald Trump wants to bring back to a, a more um, protectionist approach? Uh, both. <laughs> I guess I say both. It's definitely taking us back and into uncharted territory. It's taking us back because when you actually look at the terms of the trade deal, it looks like something Alexander Hamilton would have 
written. Uh, we've been very free trade on a global scale since World War II. Uh, but back when uh, the founding fathers were setting up America's economy, uh, income taxes didn't even exist back then. The federal government made pretty much all of its revenue on tariffs, uh, tariffs that protect American industry. Uh, and so, and that's one of the reasons like industrial revolution, America became <laughs> uh, an industrial powerhouse is that we weren't exporting those industrial jobs to uh, nations that did it cheaper. So it's definitely taking us back to uh, mercantilist is the official term that they used for that system where you're, um, you have tariffs to protect your national industry. So it's definitely taking us back to what America was like <laughs> in the 1800s. Um, However, it's probably taking us into uncharted territory is that like when uh, America was founded just because there weren't gasoline engines and steam powered boats and airplanes and stuff like that. Just the logistics is we probably made most of the stuff that we used on an everyday basis here anyway. We did export some agricultural goods, but we were in no means reliant on other nations. Uh, it made additional wealth, but it wasn't a national security threat if uh, England stopped selling us tea during the revolution and we started drinking more coffee and we did fine. Uh, now, because, like I said, we are reliant on 12% of our goods um, for this, that if you, if you kick off a trade war, um, Americans could see their standard of living drop very quickly unless this is he's Trump's got a pretty good plan where he's like, well, if you increase the tariffs, you kind of reverse the flow and start bringing industry back to America to where um, and phase this in over a number of years to eventually, you know, 10, 15 years from now, we get to a point where we aren't reliant on China and we're a self-sufficient nation. Uh, but there is definitely the risk that if this shocks the system, um, you could see a, a standard of living drop very quickly uh, and then in a way that would be uncharted and that America's never experienced anything like that before. We're discussing President Trump's policies on trade, uh, particularly in relation to China, here on Trumpet Hour. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. I'm here with Philadelphia Trumpet staff writer Andrew Miller here in the studio. And we've been discussing President Donald Trump's recent speech at CPAC and his policies on trade. And I've heard it said, maybe you have too, that when goods don't cross borders, armies do. There is a constant struggle going on over trade, over trade imbalances over trade advantages and disadvantages. And there's definitely a struggle going on right now, particularly as our, our guest has said, between the United States, uh, which has been the world's largest economy, and China, which probably at this point is uh, the world's largest economy. So, Andrew, why is it that we're not covering the uh, campaign, pol uh, the policy speeches of other 
Republican candidates for president or other uh, Democrat uh, candidates for for president. Why is it important to notice Donald Trump's policies or proposed policies on trade? That is a very good question, because I'm sure there are Republican candidates, uh, Ron DeSantis comes to mind, who probably have very good trade policy. I don't know for sure. I haven't listened to any Ron DeSantis speeches on trade policy. Uh, and the reason I haven't listened to any Ron DeSantis uh, speeches on trade policy is that of uh, a prophecy in Second Kings 14, uh, verses 26 through 28, uh, and another one in Amos 7, verses 8, that talks about an end-time uh, Jeroboam figure who comes to power uh, in America and temporarily saves it from some radical people trying to destroy it. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry's uh, identified uh, President Trump as that Jeroboam figure all the way back in 2016. And so we're expecting him to be the man who is going to actually like temporarily save America from the radical Marxist Biden administration. So I definitely keep closer tabs on his economic policy because it's it's the one that's probably going to be the most uh, influential of all the ones discussed at CPAC. And uh, like I said, he did do a good speech that um, really would have a if you can get it done, if you can get it done the way he wants, it really would make uh, America an industrial powerhouse on the world scene. Well, thank you, Andrew, for joining us in studio to discuss President Donald Trump's policies on trade and how that might factor into Bible prophecy. I'd encourage our listeners to go to thetrumpet.com slash library and look for America Under Attack uh, by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. TheTrumpet.com slash library, America under attack. After withdrawing from and losing Iraq and Afghanistan, many Americans have lost sight of the nation right in the middle, Iran. For a lot of us, it's just part of the overall background mix of bad news. Is Iran still relevant? Is it still a threat? Joining me from our office in England is staff writer Simon Zekic to answer those questions. Yes, yeah, so this been a bit of a flurry of uh, reports coming from, well, about Iran coming from all over the world for uh, quite a while. Last month, there were rumors circulating. Media were citing uh, anonymous officials claiming that Iran has reached uh, about 84% purity in its uranium enrichment program. Uh, now, to give some context, a couple of years ago, it was at 60%, and 90% is considered weapons grade. On uh, February 24th, Press TV, which is uh, English-language state media in Iran, confirmed it. 
Um, and four days after that, the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, confirmed from their end as well. Now, from what it looks like, only traces of 84% uranium have been found. So it's not like uh, Tehran has these stockpiles of near-weapons-grade uranium just waiting to go. But at the same time, it is still quite an accomplishment. Um, we mentioned uh, 60% that Iran has been doing for a couple of years right now. Um even the le levels that high have no civilian application around uh, with the nuclear negotiations going on with the United States and in other forms. Iran keeps maintaining that its nuclear program is strictly civilian, that it's being bullied unnecessarily by the Western powers. It's already well past the level that it would need for civilian applications. Um, and to make things more interesting, the same day the uh, IAEA gave its confirmation – um, the United States House of Representatives was having an armed services committee hearing, and uh, the main topic of question was about the war in Ukraine, but they also asked uh, Pentagon advisor Colin Call about uh, Iran's nuclear progress. And Call gave a bit of a sobering uh, assessment. He said that Iran's uh, progress with its nuclear program since the United States withdrew from the, the nuclear deal a few years back, remarkable. And he said he expects Iran to reach nuclear breakout in 12 days, which would put the expected uh, breakout date on the uh, 12th of March. We'll see if uh, this prediction holds any water or not. Part of Call's testimony sounded more like he was taking the opportunity to bash the previous presidency for withdrawing from the uh, agreement. And he might just be sensationalizing uh, the threat that way. But again, with these recent developments, 84% uranium uh, enrichment, these estimations from the Pentagon, um, Iran is, to say the least, closer than ever of developing a nuclear bomb and at, at the most could just be a handful of days away from developing such a bomb. So 84%, this seems like a, a real milestone. I mean, we, we've been watching this for a while. Um, We've heard rumors before. We've heard anonymous officials uh, before warning about the threat of Iran just having a nuclear program to begin with. But uh, this seems to be, and now not only rumors, not only anonymous officials, but confirmed by the IAEA and by Iranian government-controlled media, yes, we, we have uh, highly enriched or 84% level purity enriched uh, uranium that, as you say, has no, no civilian uh, use. So <clears throat> tell me, give me, just give me a, um, like how, how big a milestone is this compared to, okay, Iran announces it has a nuclear program. Um, how many more milestones could we have before we actually uh, see a nuclear test in Iran? Um, not very many. Um, as you mentioned, uh, these kinds of stories have been circulating around for a while. And just uh, in just looking into some of the information piece, I thought it was pretty humorous. I found uh, an article from The Guardian from 2005 saying that Iran could have the nuclear bomb in five years from then. That obviously, as far as we know, didn't happen. And a lot of different uh, news mediums from across political spectrums and from across countries have made similar predictions. Of course, 
the Iranian nuclear program is pretty secretive for obvious reasons. Iran doesn't want um, too many outside observers seeing what's going on. And the fact that they're letting the IAEA examine as much as they are, I think, is pretty remarkable in and of itself, even though Iran repeatedly keeps uh, curtailing what kind of access they have and and the the uh, atomic agency pretends like nothing's changing when it is. But Again, 90% is weapons grade. At this point, again, it's trace elements that we're getting. But if they're making it this far, it won't take long for them to start actually not only producing the hard stuff, but producing a lot of it. The same day Press TV made their announcements, the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is uh, Iran's main, shall we say, offensive military meant on exporting the Islamic Revolution, announced they have developed a, a, long a new type of long-range cruise missile and so assuming the missile's range isn't exaggerated, and they gave uh, a range of about a, uh, over a 1,000 miles, um, the missile could reach places like Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, places that are considered more, more closer to the Western camp, That, and some of them, like Israel, have nuclear weapons. So countries like Israel are taking these threats really seriously. Prime Minister Benjamin, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made a... Uh, uh, a pre uh, or he gave a, a weekly cabinet meeting uh, not too long after where he released some of the details of his conversation and he said that uh, uh, is nothing will deter Israel from defending itself and from preventing its enemies I uh, in other words Iran from eliminating uh, the Jewish state so you're seeing a lot more banter back and forth if we could say a bit of saber rattling on both sides Iran already has the missile technology it previously bragged it could reach israel within 400 seconds if it wanted to it's starting to get the actual levels of uranium that it needs and all it needs is to get a decent amount of stockpile which could be with as soon as this year and we could potentially start seeing nuclear tests uh, of actual nuclear bombs in iran again there are a lot of secrets uh, surrounding iran's nuclear program a lot of people have been making various predictions for a long time um, we're getting to the point now, though, where these predictions and these es estimations can afford to become more and more accurate simply because, there's, A, there's more and more corroboration between from sources like the IAEA, and we even have the Iranians themselves acknowledging what's happening. And at this point, like with the countdown to 90, there's not much left. And once we get that, it's another thing to think about is – who exactly is getting the nuclear bomb? There's a lot of rogue states right now that have nuclear weapons. Like you could think of like North Korea or Pakistan. The countries with those kinds of government situations are unsettling enough. But with Iran, you have the ideological element attached to it. Iran is, of course, an Islamist regime. Um, and their basic ideology is war with the West at all costs. Uh, the particular brand of Islam the the mullahs in tehran follow 12 or shiism to simplify one of their basic doctrines is that their version of the messiah won't come until as much chaos can be sown here and there and what better way to cause chaos than a nuclear war and on top of that you have uh, the state of israel the so-called little satan profaning uh, the holiness according to muslims of the al-aqsa mosque the dome of the rock and all these places and iran has for years vowed to wipe israel off the map so 
unlike even, say, extremist regimes like North Korea, once Iran gets the nuclear bomb, of all countries in the world that are going nuclear, they would be by far the most likely of them to use it. And not only to use it, but to use it against other nuclear states. That would mean nuclear war. Of course, America is also on the radar of the Iranians, too, and has been since the revolution in 1979. So when we're talking about a nuclear Iran, we're not talking about another North Korea scenario. We're talking about probably the closest the modern world could get to a nuclear war or the closest milestone to that since probably the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Uh, Why is it that we follow every step of Iran's nuclear program, for example, compared to, as you say, North Korea's? Well, I mean, the ultimate reason that we use for analysis for any part of the world is, of course, Bible prophecy. And there are two particular prophecies that uh, factor into this. Um, In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ said in verses 21 and 22 that preceding his coming, there would be a great tribulation that if the second coming didn't put a stop to it, no flesh would be saved alive. This was not possible for mankind to wipe himself out before nuclear weapons, before the invention of weapons of mass destruction. And a parallel, a parallel prophecy in Daniel 12 uh, talks about this being a time of trouble since there never was a nation. But the reason we focus on Iran specifically is in the context of that Daniel 12 prophecy, Daniel 11 verse 40 shows what's going to be one of the catalysts of that prophecy. And it talks about a king of the south, uh, a pushy, provocative uh, empire that makes jabs at the west, that makes jabs in places like Europe is going to step on Europe's toes, and uh, that's going to be the trigger of this nuclear World War III for uh, years and years. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Chair Fleury, has pointed to Iran and radical Islam as being the fulfillment of that king of the south. And we don't know specifically if nuclear weapons will play a part in that, but I mean, with everything else Iran has done, with how they just marched through the Middle East, there's reports now saying that they're currently harboring the current leader of al-Qaeda. Um, they, if they get the nuclear bomb, what could be more provocative than being the first country to use a nuclear weapon in an attack since Hiroshima and Nagasaki? An ominous milestone indeed. Thanks, Simon Zekich, for that report. And do order your free copy of The King of the South by Gerald Fleury. I want to dwell on that for just a minute. If you if you need a good reason to follow the trumpet, to see if the trumpet is uh, different than other news magazines, than other uh, commentary magazines, than other prophecy magazines, this is the one booklet or one book that I would really recommend that you order. It actually traces the history of not just Iran, but of this prediction, of this forecast that Iran would lead radical Islam. It actually traces the history of that, that the prediction itself. So uh, order that at thetrumpet.com slash library.
so why so much about Germany? If you listen to Trumpet Hour or Trumpet Daily, or if you read the Philadelphia Trumpet, you'll notice that Germany comes up often. German elections, German coalitions, German politics, German military movements. Why is that? Here in the studio, I'm joined by Josue Michels. He's a staff writer for The Trumpet, as well as a translator and presenter for The Trumpet in the German language, and he is from Germany. So Josue, why does The Trumpet focus so much on your home country? Part of the reason is that I have a job, but also because the trumpet was rising at the same time as Germany. We started our work in 1989, and that was the year when the German wall fell. And the next year is the year of the German unifi reunification, 1990, and that's when we had the first issue of our magazine. And from there on, Germany rise drastically. It got involved in Yugoslavia and the breakup of Yugoslavia. And our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, has written a whole booklet about that exact event. And years later, 1996, a bombshell revelation came out about a Nazi underground movement and how the United States actually not, did not talk about it for decades, but that that movement existed. And ever since we have watched Germany's rise for economic dominance, for the European Union, for the control of the Union, of the control of the currency of that Union, the Euro, we have seen Germany's push to establish an, EU, an European army. We have seen it form an alliance with Russia and also China. And we have been waiting for a strong German leader. And that's why we have watched German politics very closely because Germany right now is very disunited. They are lacking a strong leader that really leads the European Union. The European Union has a large organization, an institution, a government, but they're not really leading the European Union. They are still led by individual leaders in their countries. They don't have a centralized government like the United States has. So we are watching for a leader And we believe that that leader will come from Germany. So you just tracked the Trumpet's coverage uh, from 1989. Very interesting, as you said there, that as the Trumpet got going in the early 1990s, uh, <clears throat> so too did Germany get going <laughs> with the reunification, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, of course. And then you just hit uh, all these major developments that the trumpet has watched for and then some that have happened or started to happen um, and some that we're still still looking for uh, the strong leader being a good example there uh, but why uh, why Germany why aren't we looking for a strong leader from Poland or you know why aren't we tracking uh, so closely um, the elections in in Hungary or so forth. We do track those things as well. But with Germany, it's been a laser focus, like you said, uh, since 19, uh, since the early 1990s. So, so maybe you could start to answer that question by giving us a brief history of this particular nation, this particular uh, European nation. Just give us a brief history of Germany, if you would. Yes, that's why. That's part of the reason why we watch Germany. And you can understand that Germany has been the only nation that has started not only one, but two world wars. So that by itself gives us a reason to watch 
the rise of this country, the unification of that country and the dominance of the European Union from that country. But you go back later and you see the first time the German tribes are really mentioned in history or they take people take note of the German people is when they were at war with the Roman Empire. And that's where they got their name. The Romans saw that they were a warfaring people. They called them warmen and that was then translated to Germany. That's where Germany got its name. It was always connected to warfare. And those were German tribes that were fighting with each other. They were not a united nation at the time, but powerful enough to confront the Roman Empire and later even invade the Roman Empire and contribute to the Roman Empire's fall. So that's very significant if you just look at it from that perspective. But where did the German tribes come from? They were actually there before the Roman Empire was established in Europe. There's a very famous German city, Trier, very close from where I actually lived. And that city claims to be established before the Roman Empire was established. And that's why we well recorded and we have that in our history. We have a booklet actually about it, Germany and the Holy Roman Empire that explains that. And it talks about how the, that city was founded by the son of a famous Assyrian king, Ninus. And that's kind of connected already to the Assyrian Empire. So that city was established by the son of a Assyrian king. And after the Assyrian Empire fell or split up, it was a large empire and a large part of that empire migrated to Europe. So we had a lot of German people that actually descended from a part of the Assyrian Empire. Now there were different races in the Assyrian Empire, but a part of that empire migrated to Europe, and we explain that in our literature, and we also have an article about that, the remarkable identity of the German people. So that's where the German people came from. So and then they were the tribes, and they had a conflict with the Roman Empire. But very, very interesting is that they later on actually took on the identity of the Roman Empire. We have the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, so they saw that there is something in the Roman Empire that we want, and that was the culture and also the religion. So Charlemagne, the 800th, he had a major role in bringing the religion and that culture to Europe, and that culture sticked with the German people to this day. In fact, it was a key component of allowing the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation to continue as long as it did. Now, officially, it dissolved in 1806, 1806, but the same culture and the same religion is still to stay. And the German people, the German tribes started uniting under Otto von Bismarck. A key date would be 1871. He united the German people and at the time, again, it was through war, through war with France and other surrounding nations. But he united them, and from there on, the German people were known for being poets and thinkers. They were very educated people, very advanced in medicine, very advanced in science, but then they started a world war. And they went about it in a very strategic way, so much so that people have a hard time tracking if they actually started World War One or not. But World War One ended and just in a few years after they started another world war, World War II. 
Adolf Hitler inspired the German people to conquer surrounding nations within weeks. That just shows how quickly and suddenly Germany can change from being very sophisticated, from leading in science, to go into warfare. And then Germany was, was occupied by the Allied forces, and it was in rubble, but it rebuilt quickly. And that led to the German reunification that we talked about earlier. And now we have seen Germany's unprecedented rise in just a few decades after that reunification. And once again, is a leading power in the world that once again leads in science and other skills. The remarkable identity of the German people. That's a, that's a pretty good summary of what you just gave us. They're walking us back from uh, Germany's current uh, situation as an advanced nation uh, all the way back to, to that ancient city uh, you mentioned near, near where you grew up. Um, you're very f you're familiar with it personally. And that is a link that takes us back to Assyria, uh, an ancient ancient empire and a powerful one at that with, with uh, as you said, connections to uh, similar traits to uh, some of the traits that the German people have have today. <clears throat> the remarkable identity of the German people. And then you also mentioned Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, as well. Both of those are available at the trumpet.com slash library, I should mention. Uh, so yeah, you brought us all the way up to today. We're talking with Josue Michels, a staff writer, translator, and presenter for the Philadelphia Trumpet about his home country and why the trumpet focuses on it so much. We'll be right back. This is 101.3 kpcg.fm. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. We're here in the studio with staff writer Josue Michels. Josue, you've just told us about your home country and its history, Germany, uh, and a history of how the trumpet has covered it and why it's different than other, other nations. Uh, several compelling reasons why the trumpet should, should track Germany more closely than other European nations, than other nations in general, uh, based on its history, its its unique history, both in the in the modern era, era uh, and also anciently, its its ties to the Assyrian Empire, as you said, there. Uh, but let's get down to the answer of why Germany um, is such an important focus of the trumpet. Uh, why has the trumpet focused so heavily on Germany? as opposed to comparable nations beyond the reasons you mentioned of, of recent and even ancient history. What is that based on, that heavy trumpet coverage of Germany? Yes, that's right. History alone is not enough for us, for us, the trumpet, to focus so much on Germany. There's an even more compelling reason, and that reason has been Length talked about by the late Herbert W. Armstrong. Now, he has studied some of that same history that we just discussed, as long as the, as well as the history of the United States and Britain, which he traced back to the Lost Ten Tribes. And there are many 
historic sources that show that the Lost Ten tribes ended up in Assyrian captivity. The Bible talks about Assyrian captivity. So that connects already right there the German people, ancient Assyria, with the Lost Ten tribes that people wonder about where they are today. So he studied the history of the Lost Ten tribes, but also the history of the German people. And Mr. Armstrong was born in the late 19th century, so he experienced World War I, and he was right on the scene, writing about World War II, writing about the rise of Mussolini and the rise of Adolf Hitler at that time. And that's when he started also his study of the Bible. He studied this history alongside the Bible and he saw current events unfolding right before his eyes. And that's when God really revealed to him major prophecies in the Bible that served as a key understanding for why we should be watching Germany. For example, one of these prophecies is written by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 10.5, and it calls Germany, or ancient Assyria, the word of God's anger. Now, Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament, but it's written by a prophet, so it does mean it has prophecy in it. And Isaiah, the prophet, recorded things, and he recorded things for the end time. We see references throughout that book, and he talks about a wonderful future in that book where animals will be tamed, where lions and sheep will be living together in peace. And those are the prophecies that certainly haven't happened yet, as well as many other prophecies that are yet to occur. So that is one key prophecy that connects Assyria anciently with the German people today. But more specifically, there's a prophecy, and that's really the keynote prophecy that Mr. Armstrong focused on, Revelation 17. Revelation 17 gives a picture of the Holy Roman Empire that we talked about before. So that's the empire that rose after the Syrian Empire, after the fall of the Roman Empire, when the German people actually took on the identity of the Roman Empire. And that history shows that there would be seven kings. But there's a very key verse in Revelation 17. It talks about five kings are fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. Now that's a very, very unique way of phrasing things. Unless you understand in what time this prophecy was revealed. This prophecy was revealed to the late Herbert W. Armstrong during the time of World War II. Later on he understood that that empire was the sixth head of the Holy Roman Empire. Now the Bible clearly says that there's one more head of this Holy Roman Empire to come. So that's why Mr. Armstrong was watching Germany very closely after the, de the decades after World War II ended. He even met with a famous leader that the German press till this day talks about. He was from the Christian Social Union, he was a leader of Bavaria, he was the second German defense minister, Franz Josef Strauss. He met that man, he even invited him to his campus in Pasadena, and he talked with him at length even about what is prophesied to happen to the German people in this end time. So this prophecy connects Mr. Armstrong to the rise of Germany and after Mr. Armstrong's death, we saw that these prophecies 
have yet to be fulfilled. That's why we are closely watching the rise of Germany. And the key work that Mr. Armstrong wrote that really built the work of the church that he founded, the Worldwide Church of God, is the United States and Britain and Prophecy. And in that book itself, he mentions that the key to understand Bible prophecy is the understanding the identity of the United States and Britain and prophecy as well as the identity of Germany. Because if you don't understand the identity of Germany, many of those biblical prophecies don't make any sense. For example, there's a prophecy about the United States and Britain's later captivity. There's another captivity, they went into captivity anciently, but these prophecies speak about an even larger captivity. They speak about the fall of the United States and Britain. While many believed that the United States and Britain would be rising, Mr. Armstrong prophesied that it would be falling after that rise. And the key to understand that prophecy is the identity of Germany, because the Bible reveals that at the hand of Germany, right now an ally of the United States and Britain, these nations will fall. So the trumpet has been covering Germany heavily for decades now. And you're saying that that's actually based on Mr. Armstrong, Herbert W. Armstrong, uh, editor and founder of The Plain Truth, focusing heavily on Germany for decades himself. Uh, uh, he, in fact, as you said, met Franz Joseph Strauss, um, the, the German strongman. Interesting to hear it, for one, interesting to hear it pronounced properly. <laughs> and, and for another, uh, to know that the German press still recognizes him as a, as a giant uh, figure in, in uh, politics. And, uh, and, and in Germany's destiny, if you will. Um, but obviously there, there you say that Mr. Armstrong based it on Bible prophecy and you brought up specific prophecies that, uh, have a, a strong time element to them. The, the five are fallen and one is, and one is not yet, um, in, re in the book of revelation. Uh, and, and then you tied Germany to Assyria uh, earlier, talking about the, the, that ancient city, uh, Trier. But then you, you point out here that in the same way that Assyria, the literal ancient nation of Assyria, conquered the literal ancient nation of Israel, the, the Bible prophecy says that it will happen again, right? Um, and, and you point out there's different uh, aspects of the Bible that show that these are these are prophecies. These are things that haven't happened yet. So either they will fail, <laughs> or they're going to happen. And uh, and you indicated there that the United States and Britain and prophecy, written by uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, actually identifies the lost ten tribes of Israel as the English speaking nations. So we have a a connection between Assyria and Israel, and now Germany, and uh, the English-speaking nations, which certainly includes the United States and Britain. So Germany is mentioned in the Bible. That's, that's something that, that I know Trumpet Hour uh, commentators are, are, are 
familiar with, uh, almost goes without saying, and yet that is a remarkable thing. <laughs> That's a re- remarkable thing that Germany is mentioned in the Bible, modern Germany, and in fact, as you said, future Germany is even uh, identified in the Bible, or as far as what Germany will do in the future. So the trumpet focuses on Germany because the Germans are the modern descendants of the Assyrians and the Americans, the British, the English speaking people are the modern descendants of ancient Israel. So that's our answer. Germany is in fact in Bible prophecy. So as you mentioned there, uh, our, our listeners, I uh, we could uh, certainly encourage them to request probably the United States and Britain and prophecy would be the book to, to request. If you haven't already read it, uh, your own free copy of the United States and Britain and prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. If memory serves, I think more than 7 million copies of that have gone out now. Uh, so you'd, you'd be in good company. Uh, the United States and Britain and prophecy order that at the trumpet.com slash library. It's time for today's last word. So you might be wondering, who's back there anyway? Who, who's, who's behind the trumpet hour? And if you're asking that, then I'm glad you did ask because I thought I'd take the opportunity to introduce myself and our, our crew. Uh, recording, editing, producing, and posting trumpet hour is done faithfully every week by production assistants Nick Irwin Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester. They take all the parts and arrange them and make it sound good and wrap it all up so you can easily listen on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or KPCG FM or on thetrumpet.com. But who is it that's behind the trumpet then and thetrumpet.com? Well, both of these are produced by the Philadelphia Church of God here in windy central Oklahoma, adjacent to Oklahoma City. Right in the center of Oklahoma is the suburb of Edmond, and just adjacent to outer Edmond is the campus of the PCG and the offices of the Trumpet. In the future, we'll talk more about the many, many, oh so many other projects that the church produces. Uh, The Key of David television program with Gerald Flurry, the Trumpet Daily program with Stephen Flurry, the 10 other English language podcasts, at kpcg.fm, not to mention the foreign language podcasts. 
the personal appearance campaigns, the Bible correspondence course, the books, the booklets, the reprint articles for days, the regional offices, the call center, the schools, the musical programs, the agriculture program, the Bible archaeology program, the concert series, even the touring Irish dance show. But here today, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Philip Nice. I'm the assistant managing editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet. And we have 12 staff writers and editors and seven artists and designers producing content for The Trumpet, for thetrumpet.com, and for Trumpet Hour, which we bring you twice a week. So I encourage you to tune in on Friday for our Week in Review program. And that's a little bit about us. Email us your thoughts. We want to learn a little bit about you, our listeners. Uh, email us at letters at thetrumpet.com. Give us your feedback. Uh, remember to visit us on thetrumpet.com slash library. And again, I'm Philip Nice. Thank you for sharing this time with Andrew Miller, Simon Zekich, Josue Michels, and me. And thank you for joining us here on Trumpet Hour. <laughs>